welcome. You're listening to the Community Conversations podcast published by Blood Advances, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. My name is Dr. Margaret Ragney, Professor of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and Associate Editor of Blood Advances. I'm your host for today's interview with Dr. Walter Arruda from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Research Institute. We are discussing his recently published manuscript, entitled Complete Correction of Hemophilia B Phenotype by Factor IX Padua Skeletal Muscle Gene Therapy in an Inhibitor-Prone Dog Model. Thank you for joining us. So we're very interested in this paper, Dr. Aruda, and um, I think it might be really helpful if you could describe the Padua Factor IX gene and why it is the, capital T-H-E, Factor IX gene to use in hemophilia B therapy. Well, thank you, Dr. Ragnar. Uh, certainly, I'll be happy to, to explain uh, our ideas about this project, in particularly uh, moving toward the skeletal muscle gene therapy. So we focus on the use of the Factor IX variant, Padua, which is doing a amino acid substitution arginine 338 to that was identified in a patient in Italy with have a, a deep venous thrombosis. And the importance of that finding was that the levels of factor nine were above 700% of the normal clotting activity, but with the normal circulant antigen, which raised the point that that was a protein with a gain of function. Therefore, we would fulfill our desire in terms of gene therapy to use a, a hyperactivity factor nine that allowed us to lower the vector dose. As in uh, many gene therapy, the lower the vector dose, the higher this is the profile of a given approach. Therefore, that allowed us to, to test this in, in animal preclinical models and uh, nowadays we know that it is uh, you know, uh, stable and safely expressed in humans uh, following liver gene therapy in a very similar uh, uh, specific activity of the protein, which is around eight to 10 fold of the normal. Therefore, together with a, uh, a collection of preclinical data in dogs uh, with severe hemophilia B, doing both a missense mutation or a early stop code that we call inhibitor-prone dogs, we learned that the immunogenicity of factor IX PADA is not increased. Therefore, make a safe approach and allow us to lower the vector dose. That's great. What, what a wonderful find. Um, so are there any patient factor IX genotypes for which this sort of muscle-based vector technology might be unsuccessful? Uh, and, and would it be uh, successful for a factor VIII gene? Uh, for factor VIII gene, uh, at this point, we do not have experience with that. There is only uh, a, a possibility that can be done, but I, I'm not aware of anybody who have expressed factor eight uh, in the skeletal muscle. Technically, should be a possible because is like factor nine is a secreted protein, 
whether the immunogenicity or the complexity or the you know intrinsic uh, production of factor eight will be different in the skeletal muscle rather than uh, liver or uh, LSEC, we don't know at this point. But in theory, it's possible. And we are actually curious about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the route that you used, um, transvenular rather than intramuscular, could you comment on that and which veins you use? Sure. Uh, we, uh, as you know, our very first trial in hemophilia patients was actually by intramuscular injection, direct intramuscular injection. The problem is that uh, we needed to keep the vector dose per site to a certain level to avoid overexpression of the protein locally, and therefore this was associated with formation of inhibitors to factor IX in preclinical models, and, and this I meant uh, hemophilia B dogs. And we learned that that was you know, accompanied by uh, several safety concerns, therefore, when we desired the intramuscular trial, we have to divide the vector dose throughout, you know, the 12 injection sites in the first dose cohort, but become close to above 90 injection sites in the higher dose cohort, and therefore is not feasible. Yeah. Well, the, the intravascular route that we are using actually is a long-standing collaboration with people interested in developing a systemic delivery to skeletal muscle in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Pretty much what we did, we borrowed the idea that you can perfuse one limb and by increasing the hydrostatic pressure and inject the vector, this makes a stabilization of the post-capillary vein. And that is the way that we can go into a limb and you have, instead of to be pontual expression, you take advantage of the, of the extensive vascularization of the skeletal muscle. Could you provide a perspective on the problem of immune response to AAV-directed gene therapy, and specifically to factor nine and to factor eight for dogs and in clinical trials, and what do you think accounts for the reduction in the immune response in the current vector design and current vector design technologies? Uh, two points there. One is against the transgene, and the second is triggered by the AV mediator capsid. So the AV mediator capsid, the immune response, the, the better strategy that we learned over the years is that lower the vector dose in general. So there is a threshold that a level above certain levels depend on the vector system, AV serotype, how the vector is made. This uh, the the trigger the immune response will be different. So therefore, one safety approach is lower the vector dose. In terms of immune response to the transgene, we do not have that in a following uh, liver direct gene therapy. Actually were able to tolerate dogs with pre-existing inhibitors to factor eight or to factor nine by doing liver uh, specific expression of the factor eight or factor nine, you can tolerate. Can the muscle be used for tolerization? So this was a question at the beginning we thought that we could not. As you know, we use intramuscular injection to uh, induce immune response like vaccine. So the idea was that maybe skeletal muscle in, does not have a tendency to induce immunotolerance. 
uh, emerging evidence now suggests that there is a pop local population of T regulatory cells into the skeletal mass that might allow us to, to, to take advantage of that in some systems. Here, uh, what we learned when we, the, in this specific paper, what we did it was a combination of two things. First, we went to this uh, dog with an early stop cord, which is a dog when you, they give uh, factor nine, K9 factor nine concentrate, they develop inhibitors. That's what we call inhibitor prone. And the second is that we chose the uh, skeletal muscle because it's not biased towards immunotolerance as the liver is. Therefore, we thought that that was the most uh, extreme challenge scenario to test whether this, number one, is efficacious, and number two, is safe. So uh, we learned from these dogs that we actually uh, delivered the vector by intravascular route, uh, was associated with a, you know, a correction in, in one animal and the other animal uh, a, uh, become a mild patient, uh, mild phenotype, sorry. And, and we challenged these dogs over a longer period of time with concentrate of canine factor nine wild type. And the idea was that uh, we, number one, we can look whether the immune response will be suppressed. Second, we think that this will mimic the clinical scenario which patients expressing part from the muscle, you know, 10 to 20% or, or not 100%, but eventually when they need to get 100%, we will have to replace the wire type factor nine. Therefore, we thought that that was the most stringent way to, to look into that. So that's why we challenge the animals over long period of times and with a, a wire type factor nine, and therefore we confirm that we induce tolerance not only to the pattern, but as well as to the wild type. And I think this is an important concept in terms of translation of potential. So do you think the approach would work similarly in humans? And if so, how might you scale it up in human clinical trials? Mm -hmm. I think here that, again, we can take advantage of ongoing clinical trials from Duchenne muscular dystrophy and others uh, muscular dystrophies. They're moving now from not only adults, but also in pediatric patients. What we learned, first of all, with the elevated hydrostatic pressure, this is very well tolerated by even patients with uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. They receive only saline, not, no vector, only the saline and mimicking the, the delivery, and was the safety profile was quite good. So therefore, you feel comfortable, especially hemophilia, the muscle is much better shape than you know, a muscular dystrophy patient. Second is that we think that uh, the vector dose that we're gonna need is much lower than the vector dose they require for muscular dystrophy because they need to transduce extensively the muscle. We just need to introduce some part of the muscle. As long as the factor 9 is secreted in the circulation, we should be fine. So I think our safety profile will be considerable uh, uh, attractive because uh, the delivery is safe, and the vector dose that we will require might be uh, necessarily be lower than the Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But now we have to compare that with the liver. And what we learned with this uh, experiment in these dogs that 
is the first time that we're, we are able to completely correct the disease phenotype by expressing PADO, which in the past we always thought that we expressed five to tenfold less in the muscle, but a, a given dose of the same serotype if you put in the liver. So by combination of the hyperactive and the delivery, I think we actually narrow the difference between liver and skeletal muscle. Now, that's really something. So a quick question about your, uh, I think there was transient immunosuppression that you administered. Was that just really simply because the dogs are inhibitor prone and it would really not have to do with uh, use in a clinical trial? Yeah, uh, the, the rationale behind that is uh, we we learned that uh, before we did an experiment in using canine, factor nine wild type in a missense dog that we to test this delivery. And we learned that if we skip uh, cyclophosphamide, which was the transient immunosuppression in dogs that we are more familiar with, it's not that we want to do that in people, but we learned that if you remove the immunosuppression, one out of the two dogs made a transient low type inhibitor that eventually disappeared. The other one did not. So we felt that uh, is a, you know, in the dog model at least is a minor risk, is a transient because we stop immunosuppression five weeks after gene delivery, and we follow them for over you know years, and we never have any evidence to immune response. Whether this will be required for humans, uh, at this point, I think, again, we will learn from the muscular dystrophy because the the, the patients in muscular dystrophy, they have a, a more uh, uh, aggressive immune response to microdystrophin. And, and the, the trials ongoing and planned trials, actually they will start with prednisone and, and with the therapeutic dose and then they will monitor uh, over time and temper that down. So I think that also as we learn, some of the patients in the liver trial also require transient immunosuppression. So therefore, I believe that if we need to do this preemptively, like just every patient, we put them on some sort of oral immunosuppression, will be in terms will be safe without the risk of a, a immune response. Whether will have immune response because of the, the uh, patient mutation. This case uh, uh, is different. Like uh, by studying these dogs, we learned that even inhibitor-prone dogs, they don't make antibody if you, you know, do a, a transient immunosuppression. And the other, as I mentioned, one out of the two without immunosuppression, missense Mutation dogs, one did a, a, a very low type of inhibitor, so we thought the risk and benefit of having a transient immunosuppression, uh, you know, uh, a bans towards uh, benefit. Right, right. So that's that's really exciting information. So um, maybe we could sort of tie this all up here and ask you finally, where do you see muscle-based gene therapy fitting into the evolving development of hemophilia gene therapy. Right. I think one problem that we, the idea of the muscle uh, is uh, that patients that we are not, uh, not be eligible for liver gene therapy because uh, uh, underlying liver disease, 
will be one potential candidate for that, because unfortunately we cannot test uh, the safety of a uh, leveraging therapy in a model uh, of a you know, hepatitis or uh, uh, which is mostly the problem with patients above 35 years old in this country and in many other countries, even younger patients, they do have, uh, unfortunately, uh, underlying liver disease by the transfusion uh, of uh, blood-borne diseases. And the second is uh, the evidence is not uh, uh, very big, but uh, promising that if you have a low type of neutralized antibody to the AV capsid, because if you do this locally, um, instead of to be intravenous systemically, you might be also able to amend patients with a low titer or neutralized antibody to the AV capsid and yet be able to have a uh, transduction efficiently. How we oh. did this? We have dogs that we in the past we inject AV2 into the skeletal muscle by IM injection, and years later, we use this intravascular deliverer, and we change the serotype. They cross-react a little bit, but we are able to actually upregulate expression. So that's very exciting, given that over half of our patients have AAV antibodies and may be ineligible for gene, standard gene therapy through the liver. That's, that's very exciting. That's correct. So uh, yep. as I said, we need to uh, extend the numbers and make more yeah. provocative studies, but it might be possible that we can overcome a little bit that that uh, uh, the presence of neutralized antibody have more people eligible. Well, Dr. Rudy, you're always doing fascinating work, and I always keep tuned to hear what you're doing, but I really want to thank you for taking this time to talk with our Blood Advances audience about your really incredibly exciting research. Thanks so much. Uh, I am the one who should take a lot, Meg. Uh, it was always <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> You've been listening to Blood Advances Community Conversations. Visit bloodadvances.org to listen to more author interviews and to subscribe to the Community Conversations podcast. Music for the Blood Advances Community Conversations was performed by the Art Topolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Topolo. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. We thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.